0: This is Comic Shenigans episode five sixty, a conversation with Eric and Julia Leewald. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 560. It's my conversation with Eric and Julia Leewald. They're the uh, two of the primary writing forces uh, behind the X-Men animated series from 1992. Um, I got the chance to sit down and chat with them today, um, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Um, we talk about a lot about X-Men animated series, but also a lot about animation in general, uh, their work on various different projects, as well as working on Young Hercules, um, Beetlejuice, some of the Disney shows. Shows from the early '90s, um, uh, let's see, gargoyles um, and a few other projects. So uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, This is a fun episode. I do recommend, however, that you go out and uh, you purchase their book um, previously on X-Men: The Making of an Animated Series. It is an absolute must-have book Uh, if you are a fan of the X-Men animated series and you don't already own this. That is an error you must fix. Um, it is a fascinating look at how the book uh sorry how the uh, t v show happened how it was produced how it almost you know, didn't get produced multiple times. Uh, we reference some things, um, as opposed to just having them re-explain things that are on the book. Uh, we at times refer to elements of the book or, uh, stories and then they expand a little bit further. So I do very much recommend that you pick up this book and give it a read. Um, it is helpful to have read it before this conversation, but you don't need to. Uh, but I do recommend you go and read it. Um, as I said, it's, it's a really fascinating read. Uh, I couldn't put it down. Um, just all the, the hijinks that were kind of going on behind the scenes of trying to put together the show. And uh, as we kind of say a few times in the interview, um, it's almost, um, a miracle that it ended up happening and, uh, being put together as well as it, as it did. Uh, and a lot of that is, uh, is thanks to Eric. Um, you know, we mentioned in the show he wasn't really an X Men fan, he didn't really have a, a personal affinity with the characters at all, yet he still wanted to put together a really good product that was different and that took itself seriously. And it's part of why it endures and why it was such a success. Um, and it's kind of fascinating that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't someone who is a lifelong fan who kind of came to it with that. That being said, there was other fans, uh, of the X-Men who were involved in the creative process, obviously. But, um, you know, he's one of the guys at the top of the, you know, the writing pile. And, uh, He didn't have that personal affinity, so it's really interesting. Anyways, I'm going to get out of the way and let you uh, listen to this great interview, but you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, Thanks again for downloading this episode, and uh, let's jump right into the conversation with Eric and Julia Leewald. Eric and Julia, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Show. How are you today?
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Adam. We really appreciate
0: it. Absolutely. Well, I'm super excited. I I feel like uh, I was I was telling my wife before uh, we started recording today that you know I that she, if if she has anyone to blame for my love of comics, she should blame you guys because you know without the entry point of the X Men, who knows if I would have become as big a comic book fan as I did. Uh, so without your show, yeah. m- maybe I wouldn't have uh, a basement full of comics. <laughs> yeah,
1: we 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 hear that a lot. I mean, it was, it was something that was, when we were doing the show. The network said, look, guys, uh, it's it's a popular comic, but that maybe means 5 or 10 percent of the people tuning in are going to know what this is. So be prepared to try to have the show make sense to people that don't know the comic and that this is their first introduction to it. So we were kind of aware that it might be uh, an intro for a lot of people.
0: Well, it def- definitely was for me and my friends. Um, so, I, I obviously want to talk to you about X-Men, but I also want to talk to you about a lot of other things. I mean, uh, just even looking at your credits, I want to talk about Young Hercules, I want to talk about The Avengers Show, but uh, specifically, I also uh, want to talk about uh, the recent book that you guys put out, or that you put out, Eric, previously on X-Men, the making of an animated series. When it came out, all I could think of is, why didn't this come out earlier? <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> Thank you so
2: much for asking, that. for having that opinion
1: about the matter, yes. Yeah, I think I- you just... Uh, I was too lazy and uh, you know we had all the stuff and I think we actually the nice part is I think we were still busy you know working on other shows and finally we hit a real serious lull and Julia looked at me and said look we've got every script and every board and every memo for every episode why don't you you know if you don't write this book nobody will so that was it. Was her doing that? It, that it came about.
2: And actually, it was about um, around the, the timing of the twentieth anniversary, which was five years ago. Okay. And just looking around and realizing, no one is celebrating the show. You know, Batman was getting attention as it deserves, and other shows
1: that have been around, but no one was yeah. saying boo about poor X Men. And X Men had kind of fallen between two companies, with you know, with Fox having the TV and movie rights, and Disney and Marvel having the comic book rights. It. They 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 haven't really been supporting it or promoting it. They've actually been killing off some X Men. It seems like so when we try when we try to get in touch with either of them, you know nobody was really interested in promoting this. So we just kind of had to do it ourselves.
0: That's so mind boggling to me because, I mean, like, I, everyone I've spoken to, I've, like, I've recommended the book to a ton of people, and a lot of them have picked it up, and I've been giving it for, for presents for, like, Christmas and, and on birthdays because, um, if anyone has ever watched your show, they have to read your book. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. All the crazy hoops you guys had to jump through, um, all the, you know, the, you, you go through all the different major crises in the beginning of the, the making of the show, and it's just, it makes me appreciate it all the more that it even exists. <laughs>
1: Well, that's gratifying because you're absolutely right. It has no business existing. <laughs> yeah, it's like being inside politics or something. When you're on the inside, you see all the stuff that can go wrong and all the all the the near misses, and it's 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 sobering. It really makes you appreciate when a show actually not only survives to get on the air, but actually functions properly or close to what you intended once it gets there. There's, it's such a Challenging business, there's so many people involved that that was that was probably my biggest takeaway from writing the book was realizing if any couple of these people of the dozens involved had been the wrong person, uh, the show wouldn't have worked, and we wouldn't be talking about it now. We were we were lucky.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask a, a very broad question. Um, so there's a lot of like really interesting uh, anecdotes and things that come out in the course of your book. When you were putting it together, was there anything in particular that you were like, you know what, this is going to blow someone's mind? Like, is there some of like, so the kind of the hidden stories that you in particular thought, well, this is really going to shock people and surprise people?
2: Well, I, I will admit to sort of um, questioning the wisdom of putting in uh, in any issue that occurred with Dear Stan Lee <laughs> He, you know, he was uh, the, the the man that made Marvel. But uh, I think it was only it, it, I think it was only fair that, that Eric addressed some of the issues that had the problems that had come up because uh, that's part of what made the
1: show happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- and I think uh, there are so many people. Uh, I, I think most everybody comes up pretty well in the book. I think the thing that was the biggest surprise for me is looking back now that that the world is X Men saturated. They're probably a billion people that will recognize the X Men today. Just going back and rem- remembering, uh, ver- only you know, only comic book people knew them, and they weren't. And Marvel wasn't part of wasn't part of the culture. They were just part of the comic book culture. And how how oddly difficult it was to convince people out here in Hollywood that this would be had the smallest chance of being successful. And you know, I mean, from from today's perspective, that's the I think the thing that hits me hardest when when you're involved in a show, there's going to be stuff you know, you're going to ruffle each other's feathers, you're going to have mm-hmm. creative differences. Those things are are normal. Uh, you're going to have people that are going to try to do stuff on the cheap, and you have to fix it, uh, or, or or you know, and those things are going to happen in in all the all the projects. But watching the this, this evolution from when I was asked to do the show, as you read, read in the book, the day before, I would, you know, the night before I was given the job, I couldn't have named the X Men. I knew they were a Marvel comic, but it wasn't, it wasn't one that I'd read as a kid. So I, you know, I was new to them, and so was the world. And now, all you have to do is say X Men, and if you're a, a random place, you know, in Kuala Lumpur, they're going to. Thirty percent of the people in the room are going to know who you're talking about. It's just it's it's part of the culture now, which is. So awesome
0: fascinating well, for sure, and it's interesting that you mentioned the fact that you know that you didn't know really who the x men were because it really says something about you that, as someone who knew nothing about it, that you still took it so seriously and were able to put together such a an amazing product, and the fact that you went through so many challenges to put it out and actually take it seriously and, you know, put together a product that wasn't just your traditional kind of fluff, you know, eighties cartoon show, but actually something different. And that actually told real character stories really is a credit to you because especially as someone who really didn't have any real knowledge of the X-Men before working on the project.
2: Well, thank you for that. And you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things that I think Eric and uh, Tony, Mark Edens, who was like your head writer, co-developer for right. the series, uh, In the beginning, realize it was Eric and Mark around our dining room table at our tiny home just trying to come up with 13 stories immediately because already the show was four months behind uh, in terms of development opportunity time. And you guys had to hit the ground running. But you approached it as these are humans who happen to have superpowers, but what makes them tick?
1: Yeah, and and it's funny out here uh – in all sorts of businesses, you have say if you're if you're if you're watching uh, TV shows or movies as a fan, you just assume everybody involved is just is as big a fan as you are and as serious about making it as good a show as it can. You know, a good portion of TV and movies and books or any any projects are just done, some people are just done by people you know to to make a paycheck and 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 just get through it and they don't really care much one way or the other and and you know that's something you learn out here uh, it, it's it's really it's really tangible when you're in the middle of a tv show because you know, you, you see and hear things when 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 they go slack or when they're not, they're not done properly so, uh, so there's a constant tension between just oh well let's get the job done and let's let's get a few half hours of, of a show on the air and then the people that care about it being the most wonderful version of this show that they could possibly do, and we happen to be surrounded by the, the second type of person and because Margaret Lesh and Sydney, well, I want to really cared about the show from the very top from the head of Fox, they said this show needs to be special and. We need to populate. We need to cast the group of people working on it with people that care as much as we do. So it came, it trickled down from the top, and uh, it was, uh, you know, we're not we're not surprised. We've been involved in shows where a lot of folks just didn't care, and and I think you can usually tell the difference.
0: And uh, this was this was one where they did care. What's interesting, uh, again, reading the book and, and having watched the show is how you guys really do kind of break out uh, long storylines or like had more of a macro idea of what to do and then you kind of broke it down by each episode, which again, it felt very different for the time. Um, I remember when I spoke to John Semper jr. About when he was working on Spider-Man that they kind of, he got the same kind of note that you guys did, which was don't tell continuing stories. And he kind of did it anyway. Um, and, and by the time they kind of noticed it, it was just kind of too late. What was it like to actually try and create a direction like that where you were creating a serial animated television show at that point in time when that really wasn't a thing?
2: Well, one thing that uh, it's hard to realize now, but looking back, um, Eric, when you got the phone call and had that first meeting, it was with the understanding that the show would only last 13 episodes. No one involved was signed for longer than 13 episodes, uh, which is a whole story unto itself. But as far as what would those 13 stories be, you and Mark made a conscious decision to tell as many complicated stories as you could.
1: Yeah, yeah. uh there was there was an absolute negotiation and discussion. Will Minio, thank goodness for him, pushing this. We had the second person at Fox, which is Sidney Iwander, who believed in serialized storytelling. He said, the best of 80s and early 90s television, dramatic television, our television, uh, are continuing stories uh, like the Hill Street Blues and, and the, those kind of things, the uh, St. Elsewhere, that kind of story. Uh, so so he was pushing for it. All the networks, all the people with money are saying, Don't do it, don't do it. If you know, there are too many downsides. The kids won't care. But Sydney was pushing for it, so Margaret I said, Fine, we'll try it. Will Minio, who was again our supervising producer, and uh, said this is the way people Learn read comic books, they read them in order, they read 15, 18 issue storylines, and so if we're going to be as true to the comic as we can, and he was a lifelong Marvel comic guy, we're going to have to try this, and so everybody bet on that, and we had problems at first season by having, you know, coming in late and having some episodes that weren't animated very well, and so that, that kind of scared them off and what John, what John was saying, by the time Spider-Man came along, they were just saying no. Look, we tried it with X Men. The it worked wonderfully as far as the storytelling went. They loved the first thirteen. They loved how the, the connection worked, but they were scared to death that we ended up four months late going on the air and however many hundreds of thousands of dollars that cost them. And one of the half dozen reasons we were late was that it was connected storytelling. Because I think they, you know, they'd had episodes one, two, four, five, and six were working, but episode uh three wasn't and so you couldn't start and put them on the air until you had half a dozen in a row that were that were working well and it's it's not a problem they have in live action television because they know the day they film it or today tape it if there's a problem or not but you know we're waiting three or four months to get something back from overseas that's animated and suddenly just before airtime it's not working it's 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 a bit of a challenge so they indulged us. Uh, Fox TV said we'll take a risk. It cost them money. They ended up loving the storytelling, but it burned them a little. And poor John on uh, Spider-Man. By the time they came along, uh, they weren't. They didn't want to hear that anymore. We we we'd used it up on X-Men. <laughs> Unfortunately, I want to. I want to give a
2: quick shout out here to a gal named Shannon Sharon Janis Sharon Janis who. Uh, had the thankless task of being the editor for the, for X-Men the animated series and she was the one who kind of came up with and, and and encouraged the little 10 to 20 second recap at the start of the episodes where that was recalled for and then the whole previously on X-Men idea <laughs> with by going to the money men and saying look if you let me do this if you let me edit this down so there can be a little recap you have that few fewer seconds to pay for animation.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's that. And just it made them feel more comfortable. It's hard now. You know, you've read the book. When we were doing the show, uh, we were getting all sorts of people worried that this that this show was going to be so complicated and sophisticated and adult that no kids could follow it. You know, no one under 15 could, could make sense out of it. And, and so – so the, the fact that we were able to do the previously on that was a small that was a gesture towards uh, oh well this will still help the kids catch up if they they miss some and it just to us it was wonderful and it's what it's what all good television does all serialized television does has it has it previously at the beginning but at the time nobody except for in Bullwinkle which was a, a wonderful show back in the late fifties mm-hmm. nobody had really done it and so it was it was a bit of a bit of a shock to. Uh, you know, you're going to bother to cut that together? Why, why are you spending a day, you know, the
0: editing bay putting that thing on there? We, we had to sell them on it. That's, that's really interesting. And, and when you mentioned it, even even just the uh, the words, the, the way that, I, now I forget which actor it was, who did the just the previous X-Men tag, it's so iconic in my head. Like, I can hear it. Like, I, you know, it's one of those things where I take it for granted that it's there. It's so interesting to hear that even that was a fight. Oh, yeah. Oh, Yes. Now, let's go back for a second. So, I mean, um, we kind of jumped in on X-Men, but, you know, how did you guys both, you know, kind of in in your own uh, business lives kind of get involved with with animation in terms of writing?
2: I I was born in Wisconsin and grew up in Texas, and it never occurred to me that people could move to Hollywood and actually get paid to do things like write or perform. It, It just, it was beyond what I could have imagined. And then... Uh, last year in college, it was some. I had a friend who was moving out to California to be a student teacher in music, and said, "I'm I'm moving to California. You want to come along?" And it, it uh, you can do that. You can just move. <laughs> so I did. I made the, the big jump and came out to Los Angeles, thinking if there's a way to become a writer and get paid for that, I will do whatever it takes. Okay. And it took about ten years of scratching and doing all kinds of different things, but eventually. Just uh, through, as everyone says, various lucky breaks and what have you, I, I got an opportunity to um, to work for the folks at the Disney Afternoon when they were just getting geared up with Chippendale and Rescue Rangers at that time, and then that whole bunch of programming that came into existence. And wouldn't you know it, the guy in the office next door
1: was me. And <laughs> I, I, I've been I've been in the business for three or four years by then. Started working. Got my foot in the door in Hanna Barbera with all things, Challenge of the Go-Bots, which was a kind of a B version of the Transformers back in the mid '80s. <laughs> and a dear friend of mine and I from college uh, uh, got our foot in the door, and, and we able to pitch them, and ended up doing each doing half a dozen episodes on that show. And Mark got Mark Edens, uh, who ended up help you know, being the in effect co. Co-developer of X-Men with me, got him involved at that point, uh, doing some writing for that show, and then it just for Hanna Barbera and a, a couple of other jobs. A place called TMS, which was a Japanese company that had an office here, uh, got got a job at Disney. Uh, they had a wonderful, huge staff at that time, which nobody has anymore. Yeah. Where they must must have been twenty five of us writers there on a, on a floor, and you know, a hundred artists. And lots of really talented people spending money like maniacs. You know, we're, uh, the smaller companies out here have very tight budgets, but Disney, it just, you know, they, they, I, I, in the time that I wrote eighteen scripts, I think at Hanna Barbera, I wrote four for Disney, just because, oh, uh, you know, you know, we, we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll spend, uh, you know, this much salary on, on on you guys. They were their management was weird and and didn't really quite get it. But the the people we met there, the the artists and writers were wonderfully talented on the Disney afternoon.
0: Of the various I mean, obviously you guys both worked on a lot of those of those shows, which show was the one that kind of spoke to you more that, that you really enjoyed writing for the most of the Disney afternoon uh-huh.
2: I love Chippendale specifically because it was my first opportunity, and then I got to be on it the longest, I think, and uh, it, it, it just, it was my way in, and it was the way to stay going, and I just enjoyed that show tremendously, but uh, I think Eric's going to jump in here oh, and yeah. say, too, that each of us got the chance to work on Winnie the Pooh, which was a high, a high watermark, uh, just such respect for that show. And getting a chance to do that, and really writing smart for yeah. something that looks deceptively clever, uh, was
1: tremendously gratifying. Yeah, me. yeah. Who was really? I loved the wordplay, and it was in its own little way very sophisticated. It was it was complicated because you know you had to create tension and drama among these gentle little creatures, um, and so that was a challenge. But it also informed me about character. They were the characters were so beautifully drawn in that show. They're so distinct. I when I talk about X Men, I, I immediately reference Winnie the Pooh because they are. It's six or seven, eight completely different characters living together and having adventures. Which we tried to make the X Men as different as possible. And it's uh, as, as Julie was saying, it's, I think it's a real high water mark. You watch some of those little eleven minute episodes. And the care and the you know the clever way that you know, this, misunderstandings among these little childlike characters, just like the world was ending. I mean, they were all gonna, gonna 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 die if something wasn't fixed, and it was fixed, and the show was over. But how you could create that much emotion and that much joy, or that much dread, or that much, however among these gentle characters was really was really a challenge. And the people that who were there that did it did it beautifully. are close friend of ours named carter crocker worked on that show it must have been for eight or nine years and was kind of the heart and soul of it uh another a friend from alabama most of us out here moved out from other places i moved out from julie moved out from texas i moved out from tennessee and and carter moved out from uh from alabama but yeah he was he knew he knew that he knew how to make that show whimsical and and, and beautiful so yeah that was my
0: favorite there when, when you're working on Winnie the Pooh, uh, what this is going to sound like a weird question, but which of the characters' voices was the easiest to kind of get into?
2: That's a fair question, because one of the things we often talk about is how distinctive each character was. Each character required a certain kind of writing. You, if you wrote a line that was for Tigger, Pooh couldn't say it. It was They were so well delineated. Uh, in a way, dear pig, dear... Um, Dear Piglet, just because I, I relate to being kind of anxious most of the time, <laughs> so uh, I, I can understand what Piglet's going
1: through. Uh, I, but um, all of them have brought their their special pleasures. Yeah, yeah, I think Pooh was probably was my favorite. Just it's just finding out how dense and, and uh, a per, uh, character can be and still be lovable and and make sense. So yeah, he he was he was a real favorite uh, uh, on my side. Just just as a as a fun answer to your question one of the I think my favorite one that I stories are one called Shampoo and each of the characters thinks that they've turned into another one so you've got all these wonderful voice actors doing you know you've got like uh, Piglet doing Tigger and Tigger doing Owl it's, it's it all becomes mixed up and then it all gets set back you know, it's, it's a huge misunderstanding but for a short time for six or seven minutes of the story each of the characters is speaking in the other character's voice. And that was just incredible fun to write. And obviously it was incredibly fun for the voice actors to do each other uh, when they were, uh, so, but it was, that was that kind of whimsy. uh, And by the way, that's a direct ripoff from uh, Alice in Wonderland. There's a moment when she's down there where she, she can't, you know, she can't think straight. And she says, boy, am I an idiot? The only buddy, this person is this stupid is my friend. So-and-so. And she says, I've been changed for Mabel. I, I can't do my, you know, I, I can't add three and three. I can't do this. Oh, my God. I've turned into another human being. And so that that fear that Alice had, yeah, it was, yeah, you steal from the best. Uh, we put, I put into put Winnie the Pooh and had it be like a serial change of, of characters. So, yeah, that was a fun one.
0: This is a question that's not, uh, it's kind of a, a question about the larger process of writing for for an animated show. Um, but at what point do you find when you're writing the voices, at what point do you start to change or have you ever changed the way that you wrote the characters now that you knew who the vo- like what the voice actors sounded like? That you were writing for their delivery or the way that they were going to sp- speak the language and how does that differ from when you first start writing a series? When you don't really have that vi- that, maybe you don't have that voice in your head yet.
2: Well, that's fair enough on this one, because uh, there had been no – aside from Pride of the X-Men, which was um, uh, a failed attempt at a pilot for what, what could have been an X-Men series, and, and in their wisdom decided that at that time, uh, Crocodile Dundee was a big hit, so let's make Wolverine Australian. I mean, <laughs> those are the kind of decisions that can that come sure. down from on top, and you go, oh, my God. Uh, but in, – and in, in, in X-Men 2, the challenge of your writing – You're so far behind. Well, you're so far ahead of where things are happening elsewhere. There's not too much time to adjust. But uh, so much fun writing for the character Beast, and that was uh, what became with Eric in the in the first episode. uh, Beast using a pulling up a minor poet to quote as a call to arms, and then it was just delivered so brilliantly. It's like, oh, this is what Beast is going to do. He's going to (laughs) quote. So,
1: so I mean, to, to answer you the specific question, um, we didn't have a lot of time between where when we were starting to write dialogue and when we had locked the actors in. We we laid out the first thirteen episodes as store as just in you know, premises without the, the dialogue in them yet. We got and we've done the show bible. We've got that up to Toronto where you're sitting right now, where all the <laughs> past was. And where they did such a marvelous, incredible job uh, on the voices, and we went back and forth. We we done, written I bet I know we'd written the pilot script, but we hadn't written too many more scripts than that. We're just at the outline stage when we find when we started locking uh, voices in. Um, but we 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 have people in our mind, like you know Wolverine. I think we, we wrote notes to them about who we had in our head and, you know, whether it's Clint Eastwood or Robert Mitchum or whoever whoever the tough guy is in your head that, that before you hear Wolverine, uh, we had certain ideas in our head. Then as soon as we heard the voice, of course, we and all the writers uh, adapted and, and, and wrote to that voice. But you're right, there was about a month there. We were, we were just imagining it. And I've got a connection for you. I don't know if it was in the book, but Bob Harris uh who was the the X Men editor at the time of all the, like the three or four X books mm-hmm. in '92? Said he had just like a, a religious experience. He had this strange <laughs> moment where it's in the recording booth, and they were and he was helping with the casting, and he'd hear people deliver X Men lines, Wolverine lines, or Road lines, or Storm lines, or whoever, Cyclops, and he said, "I've been reading these characters for twenty years, and." I've only heard them in my head, and now I'm hearing I'm hearing them in real life, and it's just inc- he found it incredibly strange that they were coming to life, and some of them. Or is it? I think this is exactly as I had imagined it, but I can't even, I can't tell because before you've heard it, it's not it's not a real sound. It's just an imagined attitude, and then dog walks up and, and then does his Wolverine <laughs> and. I just went, oh Jesus! That's what I've been hearing in my head. So that it's for it's it's a fascinating thing. It's like if you have a favorite book again, and suddenly there's a movie made out of it. Is is this what you'd imagine? That if it isn't, is that a problem? Uh, I don't know. But we were we were very lucky with the cast. We ended up with uh, just just top people. The, you know, I think the the
0: best your City had to offer, and we're, we're forever in their debt. It's interesting because – so Bob obviously had it from the – perspective of someone who had always heard it in his head but never actually heard it uh, someone say it and I come at it from uh, and a lot of fans like me who came to your show and as their first kind of major X-Men experience and it's the other way where I cannot read Wolverine without hearing Cal Dodd like that's just the voice in my head and like and I've watched other X-Men shows but the voices in yours partially you know maybe because I was younger and it was the first thing that was kind of ingrained in my head I'm always going to hear your cast whenever I read X-Men books it's just the way it's going to be just like for me, you know, I as much as I watch the um, in reruns the sixties Spider Man show, I hear then the uh John Semper Jr. Spider Man show, all those voices are those the voices of Spider Man that I hear. And so it's interesting that, you know, I, I have the other the other end of uh, Bob Harris's uh experience where it's just you guys your your team is my the voices I hear in my head. Sure. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting. I'm actually going to be speaking with Cal uh, this coming weekend um, uh, about his time on the show. I'm so really excited about uh, uh, about having that conversation, and that's going to be kind of crazy. Again, uh, one thing I like about the show is being able to talk to either creators of comics that, of, that I've loved and enjoyed for years, or like yourselves, people who had a, a, a big hand in developing big pieces of my childhood or something that made such a big difference to me. So that'll be really strange to uh, have Wolverine on the other end. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. Such a nice guy. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he's wonderful, and, and, and yeah, he, he, he they stun people. that the, uh, They're not used to it because, you know, they're voiceover actors, and they're not – it's not like William Shatner walks in a room and everybody knows it's Captain Kirk. People haven't seen Cal. Hundreds of millions of them have listened to him and enjoyed him, and if they heard his voice, it's, oh, I, I know that voice. They'll, they, they'll, but he could watch sure walk in a room almost anywhere and not, and not be recognized the way live-action – performers are. And it's just, it's an interesting distinction. I, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we know both uh, people that are on both sides of that. But, uh, I, I just, I hope more and more people like you discover Cal and talk to him because, you know, he's, he's a wonderful, you know, he's a wonderful interview and he did such great work for us. You know, we, we,
0: we hope he gets more recognition for Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, it kind of it's shocking that he hasn't been a I haven't used him more. I, I'm excited to talk to him and just be like, what, what kind of happened there that he didn't get used more often? Because you know he was in the first few X Men video games that they used Wolverine's voice. He was obviously like on your show, and then you know where has like why haven't we been able to hear more of him as Wolverine when he's everyone's Wolverine? Like for most people, <laughs> that's that's the that's the voice they hear. So it's kind of it's really fascinating, and I'm excited to talk to him about that. Um yeah, uh, that's going to be really interesting. So I'm excited to uh, to do that. And it was really interesting just to hear you know, in your book when you kind of actually have the interviews with all the different kind of creative types who worked on the show, especially with the voice actors and actors, and kind of getting into kind of the nuts and bolts of what brought them to the project and how they worked on it. It's really interesting because they all came from such different places and not from the typical kind of voice acting schools. Yeah. That's true.
2: That's true. Specifically in Toronto, uh, the, the theater world is, is where the, the the talent for this yeah.
1: mostly came from? Yeah, and, and and he and he coming from from being a jazz singer and and knowing people like and uh, Cyclops having done jingles, you know, on on the radio or television ads, and and uh, Rogue, who was doing some live action television, but you know was has started her interest in politics. I and mean, you have people from all over. Uh, the you know, The cast a pretty wide net, I think. Uh, you know, they worked for a couple, three weeks to find the right cast and, and they really waited until they got the right person. And they seemed to always know immediately, ah, this is finally, this is our road. We've been looking. This is, it's her. So,
2: but it took that kind of search because the first time, okay, it's a cartoon show. All right. Here are the voices we have available. <laughs> uh, uh, and and to their credit, that's you know they weren't. No one was trying to be difficult. It's just they they couldn't wrap their heads around what this project was trying
1: it, to be. It was so oddly different in terms of the writing that it took that first misstep of them not quite getting how adult and serious and and straight we wanted it played and dramatic we wanted it played and which is which was nice because that means it meant that after stumbling the first time, everybody went up and tripled their efforts. They said, okay. We, we, we didn't get it right. We're going to work at this until we
0: get the perfect person for every, for every character. And they really did. That's one of the revelations from your book that I found so interesting was both that part with the fact that, you know, the, the first time that they kind of did the casting, your guys are like, whoa, whoa, this is, this is, this is jokey, this is campy, that's, that doesn't work. That was a really interesting revelation that you guys even had that process and ha- the way that you ended up having to kind of, um, stretch the net in terms of the type of talent you were bringing in to be on the show was really interesting. But what I also thought was fascinating was the kind of the game of chicken that was played when they wanted to reject all the Jim Lee designs because he was no longer with the company. And, that you guys kind of put together the kind of the 70s, 80-ish kind of campy version of X-Men and kind of said, well, like, hope, hopefully they'll, you know, want to go with the Jim Lee designs. That is fascinating to me that that was even a thing. Like that that game of chicken was played and that thankfully you guys won.
1: Oh, yeah. It was it was shocking to me. I didn't, I, w- I wasn't even told about it at the time. We were so, the writers and I were so, working so hard getting scripts that I maybe heard something about, uh, just a, a, an offhand comment about there may be some issue with the designs, and okay, well, don't talk to me about it. Fix, you know. That's <laughs> well,
2: on you. We write. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so I didn't know the full story until I did the book, and it Will tell me, oh yeah, it wasn't just a small thing. It was going to ruin the show. They were going to make us have to re, you know, do, redo a month's work, and it was just it was it was just going to be awful. And so I, you know, he took that he took that risk. He took that risk, handing. Sincerely, handing in some terrible designs, <laughs> in the whole, that people would be so horrified that they'd stay with the old ones, and it worked. And it just—it's a—it's a fun—it's a, fun, a fun bit of human psychology that, okay, you're gonna, you're going to ruin the show. I'll show you to ruin the show, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it worked.
2: But it speaks to also the folks involved with the show who really were willing to literally put their jobs on the line. And it was, i mean, it was amazing how many folks who were in the right place at at the moment, but who said, No, this is not how we're gonna do it, or yes, this is how we will do it, or I walk. And it it,
1: Yeah, a lot a lot of people in Will's position look, uh I've got a show to get out. I don't care how they want me to design this thing, I'll do it upside down. Uh just just sign off on it and let's make a show. And and what was wrong on, on the design. And he, you know, Yeah, those things don't happen by themselves. They happen when people put out, you know, put
0: the effort out. I want to jump ahead a little bit. I mean, we're kind of jumping around, but um, I, I had a question. So I, I was talking to a friend of mine today, and I was saying, oh, uh, I'm going to you know, be talking with you guys tonight about, about the show, and he's like, can you ask them about why the last season wasn't as good? And I'm like, I asked them, I said, close your eyes. Watch the last season. Close your eyes. Just listen to it. It's still a good show. It's just the animation which is suffering. What yeah. was that like for you guys when that animation, when you saw what it, that the product was not going to look the same anymore, and what was that feeling like?
2: There's a certain irony in that being a part of something that's considered a hit show, and and the excitement that comes with that, and then the the dawning that. The folks in charge of the money are are tightening the spigot at every opportunity. In other words, you, it might be nice to think, oh, more money will be spent on this project because it's a hit, and instead, it was the exact
1: opposite. Yeah, it was reversed. At the time, again, it takes it takes so many months. We, we'd finished the writing of the, of the last season, and we're and we we're we were on to another project. When I, you know, we finally saw some animation, you know, a few months later, and at that point, it was just. What and, you know? What, what this is? This isn't quite right. This is. You know, some of them were better than others that last season, but most of them were pretty, were pretty lame, uh, as far as the animation went, and far as the design went. And we just thought, you know, to, to be honest, I looked at it and said, you know, for four years we've been fighting to keep the animation a certain quality, and this this is what it would have looked like, or worse. If we hadn't fought those first four years, it almost it kind of made me grateful for the level of animation we got. The first four years was not beautiful; It was nowhere near Batman or Disney quality, but it was just enough quality that we could tell our stories and and it, and be proud of it. I think, as I as I said, if we hadn't fought as hard as we had, had and Margaret Les hadn't put her foot down as hard as she had, it it would have the entire show would have looked that bad or worse and just because you know the people involved would say look we're giving you 22 minutes stop complaining you know this is the budget we have we're gonna send it to the Philippines or we're gonna send it to China or wherever and uh, you know this is within the contract stop complaining that would have been the attitude of some of the people producing and yeah the the weakness of the last season in retrospect, I said oddly made me
0: grateful for what we got in the first four years. No, uh, that makes sense. Um, I want to ask uh, as well. So, um, in terms of what you guys kind of did, it's interesting in the book where you kind of said that like it was always meant to end with Beyond Good and Evil, which I didn't realize uh, until reading in your book, and that the the like the last what ten or so episodes were kind of uh, a kind of attack on. How did that from a show running perspective? How did you kind of handle? You know, thinking you had an ending, a pretty firm ending, and having this big story and all these big plans to kind of you know really shake things up and let, leave it on that note, and then suddenly it's it's very different. Um, you you tackled it a little bit in your book, but uh, can you expand a little bit about what that reaction was like from a writing perspective? That suddenly the, your ending is not a, your ending anymore.
1: Yeah, that was seriously disappointing because I I and Mark Edens, who worked on so many of the episodes with me, laying the back, the stories out, absolutely believe that. The ending, the resolution of a story, whether it's one episode or or an entire series, is the most important part. You're, all the stuff you've tried to build towards that, and that there's a, there are good ways and there are weak ways to resolve stories. Um, when we had to make the change, there was a day or two of just serious disappointment. Like, okay, we've, we've built this huge thing, this way to send off you know, to, to wrap everything up. And um, now we have, not only do we have, I mean, we just have to set it aside and just, that would have been one thing. We had to keep the story without the reason for the story, without it wrapping the series up. And that kind of pulled the, world the guts out of it for me. So that that was disappointing. But the, what, what ended up being uh, the last season, the writing still felt to me, there were couple of the weakest episodes in that series but i thought there were two or three of the strongest episodes in that series that say you can close your eyes and and listen along like the phalanx story that the, the 2 part. i thought was the tightest was like our best cliffhanger it was one of our best stories ever uh, so there was still some good storytelling there and actually getting a second chance to to wrap up the story we were able to make it more personal and less about the spectacle, which was I think the strength of the storytelling anyway. We made it that they in effect lose their father, that they lose Xavier and he and the last episode the last image of the whole uh, series is them looking up into space as he's as he's gone and they're left alone to to fend for themselves as X Men. That emotionally was an even better way for the series to wind up as far as I was concerned. So it's like we had a first shot. And we made a big, spectacular, booming ending. And that was fine. And it it weakened it to have to to, to adjust it.
0: But then when we got a second chance to end the series, I actually liked that ending sequence better than the first one we did. I want to ask about what was it like working with Len Ween on the show?
2: Oh, it it was an honor. And it was also a a kind of... um, Crazy time in 1992 to 1997 that we were all out in Los Angeles and Marvel Comic Headquarters was in New York, and this was in the day of the fax machine and (laughs) we didn't have the internet like we do now. And there was
1: we 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 really didn't know any comic book writers uh, because they were
2: basically in New York and we were all here in Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, so we didn't when we were given the job. We just like, okay who are the animation writers that can do the best work on this? It didn't even, believe it or not, this is hard to imagine now, but it didn't occur to me to call up my agent and say, well, are there three or four really good uh, uh, you know, uh, comic book writers we could look at as well that, that have animation experience? And it happened after we got the first season written that Bob Skeer pulled me aside Eric, you don't understand, Len Wein's out here. He's writing for animation he knows how to do it he's ready to work on X-Men and it's Len. and so I said oh yes oh, wait a minute and I had to kind of, kind of I said, you mean the guy that, that resurrected the, the whole team back in the mid 70s <laughs> so, so I got I had to have that phone call where I called uh, <coughs> hi uh, uh, Len. You, know, you don't know me let me uh, introduce myself but we've been doing an X-Men show for a year now how would you like to join us And he was wonderful about, you know, was a real gentleman about the whole thing. And, uh, and, but it was, we actually got through that first year without imagining that we might have, say, Len or Chris Claremont or somebody from the books that was, that really knew the characters from the books uh, on our writing staff because we just were thinking TV writers first. And luckily,
2: beyond the realm of possibility at that
1: point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we certainly, if they lived in Manhattan and were working, you know, three thousand miles away, if they were working there, it wouldn't have been practical for them to work on the show. They needed to be out here. But Len and a couple of other people, like Mark Wolfman, had come out from comics and were making a career for themselves in animation. So we discovered in that second year that, that hey, there are a couple folks. That were, that were seriously accomplished from the comics world that are now available to us. So we always, you know, we always took pitches from them. But in Len's case, obviously, uh, it was a perfect fit from,
0: from the first day, and he ended up, I think, doing five, five of them for us. Now, one of the episodes he wrote was the Captain America episode. I'm curious, um, given that period, was it difficult to convince them to let you use Captain America? Because, I mean, I guess I'm coming at it as a, in the period where, you know, everyone has different licenses and I'm kind of used to that, you know, that idea of the different kind of silos. So I'm curious what that looked like in, you know, in the mid-90s where you guys are like, I want to use Captain America. Was there any pushback about that?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the, the, we, it, took, it took a few weeks uh, Len, I, I talked to Len and I said, "Look, we've got one more season to go. Uh, would you like another assignment?" And he said, "Yeah, I'd like to come back." But you know, the story I'd really like to tell is about Wolverine and Captain America back in the war. And I said, "Oh God, I'd love to do that." one. you know they're not—they weren't letting us use any other Marvel characters. They weren't letting us use most of the people from the X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> You're right; thing was licensed. And so we had to have a couple weeks of you know lawyers going back and forth till find that okay Marvel had wrote up a contract to allow him this one time in our show to, to do the same thing with uh, John Semper with the crossover episode with X Men and Spider Man they had to work you know all the attorneys had to sit down for a couple weeks and work it all out but yes it came from me asking Len if what kind of what uh, episode he liked to write. He said Captain America, we passed it up the line, and they came back and said, well we'll, we'll, well, we'll let you do it this one time. So it was very, you're right, it wasn't a casual.
0: Now, I, I, this kind of dovetails, but I mean, a few years later, you're working on the Avengers show. How did your involvement in that kind of come about? Was it a natural kind of segue, or is it because I think I read somewhere that like, it was kind of all new people, like, it was all different? It, it was. It, it was. It was one
2: of those we we have had and we had a great relationship with, with the folks at Fox Kids and you know uh, always excited to go in and and, and and meet with them about a potential project and okay the Avengers well this will be fun <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then that first meeting okay so we're gonna use oh so we go in assuming
1: it's gonna be the real Avengers
2: so with, we get to work for, with Captain America we get to work Thor, with Thor and Hulk. And- and as we're listing these names off, they go. We're not using Captain America. Okay, we're not using Thor. Okay, we're
1: not. Everyone we listed, we're not. No using Iron Captain. Man. No Hulk. Yeah. No. yeah and it was a they. they it, instead, it's, they, they had some weird idea that they were saving them for each for their own series.
2: That was the phrase, saving them.
1: As as if as if if we used them, we'd use them up. Which, <laughs> looking at the way Marvel cross-purposes things today is it was crazy it was it was silly and so so we're in the room with with these people and basically saying you wants to do the avengers but without the six or seven main avengers so it's like the ant-man and wasp show and they said yeah yeah oh, oh but it's still it's gonna be wonderful everybody loves the event he's gonna love the avengers and we kind of, you know, we didn't quite get what they wanted from the get-go, and they were new people. It wasn't. It was Heim Saban, without Margaret Lash and Sydney I Water. Yeah, they. We didn't, we didn't have the bosses, you know, deciding how you know what what the show should be like that we'd had before. We were felt like we were kind of at cross purposes with the people. Uh, so uh, you know, I say Heim. It was Abhi Arad, It was uh, some you know new executives that. The, the network that was showing it it wasn't it besides being missing the main avengers it was we were missing our colleagues yeah and we it was it was the, i think probably slightly bigger budget and and i'm sure some of the animation holds up nicely but we actually, you know, we, we got involved and we were being good soldiers and we wrote the scripts. You know, it's very similar staff of writers that we used on X-Men. We, we, you know, we wrote the scripts as well as we thought we could, but I don't think we ever connected with those kind of sub-Avengers or B-Team Avengers uh, anywhere near the way we did uh, on X-Men. And we knew it while we were doing it and wished we could fix it. But it was just a case of, well, it wasn't our show to decide the creative direction on. Do we want to do it or not? And we said, okay, well, we'll, we'll do what we can. And as a result, it's not one that we look back to you know, fondly, either for the experience of writing
0: it or for the results of it. Either well. That. Hmm. Nah. Now a question. It's interesting. Like so, when when you got brought on that book and you, sorry on that title or is that show, sorry, um, and you kind of mentioned that you you were kind of running it. What was that like to go from kind of being the you know the guy on X Men uh, to not being the guy on Avengers? I mean, obviously there's a lot of different projects you worked on as well, but what was it like in particular, just because of the proximity of it being a related comic book property from the same publisher?
2: Well, and also not just from the same publisher, but from the same publisher at a time when there were huge financial
1: cogs that were grinding apart. At that point, yeah, they were going through bankruptcy then, so that was that was a little frustrating. But it, it's it comes down to even on X Men, where I was the quote unquote story editor, showrunner, whatever. Uh, if uh, the people that really had the creative power were the people at Fox, were Sydney Sid- and Margaret, and if Sydney had wanted. Uh, had, you know, wanted me to do a you know completely different X Men. That's what I would be, have been paid to do. I was basically working for for Fox creatively. Inter- interesting. Marvel was at such a point there they didn't understand there was there'd be any interest, or any profit in working with Hollywood. So they didn't have basically have a, uh, a veto power I and mean, everything. They were advisors. It was Fox's show, not Marvel's, and Marvel. Suggested things and they were wonderfully supportive. the guys I worked with, like Bob Harris and Joe Palomari, but it was X Men was Fox's show, and then by the time we got to Avengers, it was Marvel's show, and that was one of the things that was different. I mean, it uh, and and so it wasn't the I was just we were, we were getting our marching orders from different people, and you know. Who, the general, the general person in charge matters a lot,
2: and it wasn't a happy marriage in that regard. A lot of different cooks in the kitchen now, and uh, those were the, the results.
1: Yeah. So is it, it's it, you know we we it's it's weird. You, know, you sometimes you don't know if a show is going to work out or not. In that case, we knew we knew from the beginning it was going to be a bit of a bit of a struggle, and it's just it's the nature of being a professional. You know, you're working for somebody. It's not your money, and it's not your property, and you're doing the best you can, but you don't have the control. So, uh, uh, I mean, honestly, we didn't—I didn't have complete control over X-Men either. But I was lucky enough to have the person above me uh, as very much like-minded and somebody that I res- whose taste I respected that well. So that's again, that's the kind of luck that you get. Where you get a not only a good property but the right person
0: that you're working for, the right boss. Mm-hmm. To go back to X Men, when you guys got the green light to do, I think it was like the thirty something episode order all at once. Um, how how very how varied were your emotions between oh my god I have to fill all this material and thank goodness we have this much space to t- to actually tell this material.
2: And, and after the first thirteen. There was a um, serious question, you know, whether the show would go forward again. And it's kind of like Eric and I were each moving forward onto other projects at that point. And then the word came back. Yeah, it's a hit. It's a big hit. We're going to go forward. In which case, that is a question of sort of getting the band back together. <laughs> but and, and some of them were available. Some folks were not.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, it wasn't. The, 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 the real re- reaction we got was it was 99 percent excitement and not dread. Um, it was because, you know, Julie and I had two little toddler baby children and we do piecework. We just do, you know, one job at a time and you know, you go times without work and suddenly being told you have 39, you know, you, you've got 39 assignments, uh, guaranteed to you. It's wonderful. It could have been on the show that we were indifferent about but it happened to be the show that we loved oh great so we were a excited that we're getting a chance to tell 39 more stories and be excited that we're going to have like a year and a half two years work to you know to to pay the the mortgage and and support our family so it was good 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 it wasn't it, it honestly didn't feel uh probably should have felt intimidating looking back at it but that's that's a lot of stories to decide but as you may remember from the book we were kind of given said look we've got the Phoenix and the dark Phoenix and that they're supposed long they should each be at least four parters so there's there's a chunk of your 39 right there so that was that was a nice start that was a nice well uh, there's eight eight or nine half hours we don't have to worry about coming up with but really the worry was minor the excitement was major
0: in in the book in the book when you break down the original phoenix saga and kind of summarize all the points that could be dropped i found it was actually really interesting to kind of look at that storyline with a, a very different set of eyes uh, to be like, well, what would actually work in a different medium and what was just superfluous and what was just of the time? Because at the time, Chris Claremont was just kind of you know, throwing things together. He had an idea what he wanted but he was also just kind of, he was like playing jazz. They were just kind of doing stuff but they had an idea but a lot of it was kind of improvised. Um, so I really liked in your book where you're kind of breaking down everything that happened and kind of saying, well, this doesn't need to be there, this doesn't need to be there, and actually kind of streamlining it into something that would actually make sense for A multi-part, you know, television episode, and it still holds together extremely well. And in fact, in some ways, almost better than the original, because you guys knew exactly what you were doing right from the beginning.
2: That was you mentioned Len Wein, and just going back to that, um, the uh, writing for a comic book takes a different set of muscles than writing for an animated show, and that takes a different set of muscles from writing for a live-action show, and all these different types of writing. And not everyone. Uh, I've never had the opportunity, but I've never tried to write a comic book, and that's again a very different way of um, presenting material. Len Wein could just flow back and forth. He could he could write comic books, he could edit them, he could edit them, and then he could write you know for television as well. In something like the Phoenix Saga or Days of Future Past, which I got to work on, you have to fill 22 minutes of airtime. For each part of the show, versus however many pages are in the book, and you know how many, how much internal dialogue is going on for your characters. It's a, it's a different way of getting the story out there. So it, it takes appreciating what medium you're in. It takes being aware of what for television, or say for the comic book, or for just animation, or just live action. But it's it's a serious set of muscles to to figure out what works, like in the Dark Phoenix saga.
1: Yeah, and, and that was a, that was a thing that you're right. Chris was really seemed to be experimenting with a lot uh, in in that co- in that era of the book, where he'd get four or five different uh, stories going at once, and then bounce back like the way they do now in in uh, primetime television a lot, mm-hmm. where they're they're more they're, they've got. A big range of characters and all sorts of plots and subplots kind of balancing out and going parallel to each other at some point, wrapping up in, 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 a, in a, is a nice resolution. Um, we really, uh, you're right about the streamlining. Uh, there's a patience you have with comic books where I think you say, okay, I've done a step a little step further on this part of the story, a little step further on this part of the story, whereas. When, when, when we're trying to tell, it's, it's almost more linear. It's, it's for for the, the shows we're trying to tell, we needed the stories to, to move simpler and, and keep moving forward as opposed to bouncing back and forth the way they were in the books. And it works beautifully in the books. It's just, as you said, if we had tried to tell all five of those stories... Simultaneously, it would have, it, that would have gotten confusing. I don't, I, I don't think adults could have followed it uh, uh, as in, 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 in uh, uh, as, as a television show. But but pairing it down and focusing it that's that's really that's that's really the heart of. I think it's a heart, you know, screenwriting is very much that way. I think there's a there's a, a streamlining and a structuring to, to to TV and movie writing that is different from books. I think books let you drift more. And uh, uh, TV and, and movies are more demanding that you get to the next thing that you, you move forward, and and we found it we very definitely found it on that that episode. And I saw so like, again on the, on the this Phoenix saga. It was just Mark and Michael Eatons working on that with me. It was you know two old college buddies, <laughs> and we kind of kept that one for ourselves.
0: One thing we you had mentioned earlier in the episode uh, when we were chatting about um, the production, etc., is that. Uh, And you, you touch on this a bit in the book as well, is that not everything was always aired in order. Um, And then on the DVDs, this was kind of re-perpetuated. And so there's always this kind of, um, this this lack of clarity on the correct order of some of the episodes. And specifically, right after the Phoenix Saga, you have an episode that didn't air for like two years. Um, How maddening was that? Um, from a, a you know an executive perspective, that you know you create this emotional story that's meant to kind of be an epilogue of sorts to the Phoenix saga, and then because of things totally outside of your your control, it ends up being held for two, well, and, and f- finalized for two years before it actually makes it out there, and then even on DVDs is in the wrong spot. Like how how upsetting is that? Yeah, it's it, it is. It's just as upsetting as it as it sounds. It makes you
1: just want to grind your teeth because. Certainly, in the DVDs, somebody could have asked us, and they, it could have been in the right order. In the case of when uh, they were shown out of order to start with on, on air, you know, we were terribly frustrated, but at least realized, okay, problems are going ha- you know, we're going ha- to the problems in production that happened. This one just happened at exactly the wrong time. If it had been an episode or two later that had been delayed it just would have been a one-off episode that it didn't matter where it showed and it wouldn't have caused the problem at all. But this one, you're right. It was like episode six of the Phoenix saga. It was the it was the emotional resolution. And yeah, believe me, that was, and we, we, of course, we, we yelled, we started to yell and scream and say, what's going on here? And they just said, look, you don't understand. We can't air the footage. We got back. And we're having a fight over, you know, we just spent a hundred thousand dollars getting something we can't air. What uh, we have to work this out to get this episode to where it's it's viewable, and that could take some time. At the time, of course, we didn't know it was going to take two years. We just thought, oh, damn, it's it's out of order. This is gonna, could ruin it, you know, for this season. You know, it could be a problem for the season. We didn't realize how long it was going to be a problem, and we were, you know, we were on to fighting the next fight and getting the next script ready and kind of had to put it, put it to the side. But that
2: to put it in perspective, though, in a way, at that time, in that moment, at least the Phoenix saga, the five episodes yeah. were told in sequence. At least yeah.
1: Ima- imagine if yeah, if it had been episode four of the Phoenix could have been screwed up it and, could have been. and didn't show for 40 for two years. But yeah, that would have been just completely. I mean, this was bad enough, but that was it, it
0: could have been worse. Um, Interesting, interesting um, note you make about you know. So when the X Men was re released on DVD, I guess this is about nine years ago now. um, It kind of blows my mind that no one spent a little bit more time on it to put it in proper order. But more so than that. Talk to anyone about doing director's commentary. One thing I love about your book is that we finally get a bit of commentary on the issues, the episodes. Like, I, I really think people need to get the book and watch the, these episodes again, and then you know, kind of read along with what your thoughts were on each episode because it's it's something that I've always wanted to know more about. Like, I I love that, especially things I grew up with. I want to know more, and so f- thankfully, finally, we have a resource where we can kind of watch these episodes that we've always enjoyed, and then get this kind of behind the scenes look at what was really going on.
2: One of the things that, that when Eric and I first met each other, uh, we were both, as young people, big fans of Star Trek, the original series, and finding a fellow person who wasn't as big a fan as I was in my way, and again, this is back in the early 90s when the internet, you had to go out and find paperback books that covered this material if you were that kind of fan, and, and I was, and so was Eric. So we had that to talk about, the behind-the-scenes stuff of a series that we love. And we understand that, you know, we're both fans of things, and uh, have been as a fan
1: frustrated by projects that that don't quite do it for you. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think with the, the problem with X Men is that it, it was a cobble together three or four little companies that made the show, and Disney ended up uh, Buena Vista Disney ended up owning the rights to sell the DVD, and by the time they were going to press it and produce it and get it out there, who knows. What junior executive was tasked with throwing the thing together and and just getting it out, getting it out for a price? And, and just if, if it had been somebody that was the equivalent of a fan or a scholar, they would have taken the time to get the right order, get notes, and, and interview people and, and make it as wonderful a, a box set as you could imagine. But I think what happens in those big corporations is. A department gets a a, a task, and if you just get the wrong person or person that doesn't know what the task needs, they just throw it together and and print it. And you get this thing with no commentary and and not in the right order. And you just, the fans were just thankful to have have DVD versions of the show to watch, and they bought it by the millions. And you'd think a smart corporation would say, My God, it just made us this money let's do a proper version. Let's do let's do one with all the extras in it. Let's let's reissue. It. And I think it's just Disney is so huge, it just gets lost in the shuffle. And that's that's the way the the uh, release happened. We we knew we were friends at Shout Factory, which is wonderful box sets of you know done it on a, like a hundred different shows now. they did one on Young Hercules where we did some of the commentary. they they would they would do a beautiful Blu-ray box set in a moment. They'd put all the money into it for, for, for Disney uh, to redo the X-Men. They've called them. They've they've pressed, pressed them. Eh, you know, we've, we've made our money on that. We're on to something else.
2: Yeah, they've reached out. We've reached out.
1: Absolutely no positive response. Now, maybe when Disney and Fox, if they, if they do merge and all the X-Men rights are under one roof again, maybe there'll be somebody there. Uh, a new executive will say, "Hey, here's an untapped resource. Let's, you know, let's have a nice Blu-ray box of, of the X-Men with some commentary. That would be wonderful. But we're we're not holding our breath.
0: We, you know, we just." It, it's, it's a shame, but that's what it is. Well, it's interesting when I when I think about the. Uh, I mean, Marvel had a, a variety of um, animated series in the nineties period, and a lot of it's kind of slowly trickled out into DVD. Because I know that you know the Fantastic Four had a two two season show that made it onto DVD. Kind of same kind of victim as uh, as your show was in terms of really kind of bare bones just kind of there, but at least it exists. Same thing with the Iron Man series, but then you know, the Hulk series which I think went at least two seasons has never been collected, but more criminal than that is, as we talked about before, John Semper's um, uh, Spider-Man show has never been collected in any format. I mean, yes, you can, I think from most places you can see it on Netflix now, but like that show was big um, and, you know, X-Men and Spider-Man together were this amazing powerhouse. I remember watching on Saturday mornings, yet somehow that's never been put on DVD and that just drives me crazy. I'm like, how does that how did no one just say, at least let's get that out the door and make our money? Like, no one wanted to do that. I just don't understand.
2: We don't either. We yeah, don't either.
1: We, 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 tr- we try, and again, <laughs> it may be that, you know what, Columbia, Sony has the movies, and Disney has the TV show, or it, who know I, who knows why it didn't go forward, or the, why wrong executive was there when the decision was made. It's, it, it's Fans have one perspective you know we, when we appreciate shows we have one perspective mm. and it seems common sense and then there's the business people that may just not get it
0: you know just no matter how much you try to get tell them they just don't get it now I want to ask how did you become involved with uh, uh, gargoyle's The Goliath Chronicles and what was that like because I mean I, I've always been confused is it a sequel series to the original or is it just a rebranding for you know, after the first couple seasons, as a as a fan, I, I admit I don't really know the answer.
1: It's it's, it's really pretty simple. They uh, Disney had done the like sixty five episodes had done a full run of the original, the uh, the one that Greg Wiseman worked on, and these are the people at Disney when they did it there and had worked with them on other shows, and when Disney got ABC, when they suddenly grabbed a, a network. Uh, the television network to have, they said, okay, we've got to fill it with stuff. And they said, well, what, what do we got? Okay, well, we got gargoyles here. Yeah, but that's been playing, you know, five days a week in syndication. Uh, and so Michael Eisner just said, okay, freshen it up a little, change it around a little, maybe a, you know, just come up with a with a new slant. You know, maybe there it's modern day or you know, <laughs> whatever. You know, just change it somehow. Give it a different. Give it a, a, a fresh title. And maybe people threw it in. So with that level of planning, uh, luckily a uh, uh, dear friend of ours, Jay Facuto, who's the executive on that, who's also the executive on RoboCop Alpha Commando that we did for him, uh, he just called me and said, uh, we're going to do thir- you know going to do a season of uh, a new version of Gargoyles and Greg's not available or Greg's not interested or they're not interested in whatever. So the person that did Gargoyles wasn't... Up to do this new revision. And so, would I like to do it? And yeah, I did. And just, I love, Jay's a fabulous person to work for. So I said, oh, yeah, I'll do it in a second. And uh, it was, uh, I think for the people that love gargoyles, I think it, it didn't fit. It didn't work. It didn't suit their mythos. they It was so different. It went from being something a little bit. Uh, supernatural and and old world and sort of operatic, yeah, something a little larger than life uh, to something more down to earth, more you know, more X Benny. And I just you know, I'm not sure who it is. Uh, I think we did some good writing on it. Julia did a couple episodes. Uh, there again, we had some top people writing on on episodes and we had more money than we're used to. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the budgets there, even though they weren't as big as some of the Disney shows, it was a nice, uh, a nice, uh, a list budget. So, so it was, it was a happy experience, but I could see if you were a fan, you'd ask, why did they change this? Why did they do this new thing? It's different from the old one, but I don't, it's not better than the old one. Well, I could see how it be how it could be confusing, and I don't. That was the the choice. Just the head of the studio said, eh, "Do a different one. You know, uh, maybe maybe put it in the U.S. Maybe put it there in Manhattan instead of call, the yeah, call <laughs> it the Goliath Chronicles. <laughs> yeah, call it the Goliath Chronicles. Okay. And so that's why there's that pondering of the universe at the beginning by Goliath each week. Which actually I enjoyed doing, I enjoyed you, know, you know, being able to have a little monologue there at the head that kind of prefaced the story that I mean, that was that was fun writing, but I just don't I don't think it was Fisher Fowl. I think it kind of it was
0: you know it, as I, say, I I don't know that it 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 makes the fans of the original series very happy when when you were working on that again, coming on to uh, a series where you already have like established voices, and you, again, to kind of kind of go back to the question about what it was like to kind of write for those characters uh, when the voices are already very pronounced. Was that relatively simple to kind of jump into in terms of nailing the voices, or was that still kind of a work in progress when you took it over?
1: It was simple, but they just they had different uh, since they had different issues, you know, mundane everyday, you know, dealing with criminals and police forces. I mean things that were, they were dealing with different issues. The the, the voices, the, the, they were such good voices. I mean, Disney gets top people. It's like when they're talking about working with people in town. And so the voices were of such a quality that, yeah, it, it just I just think it was probably, looking back, it was frustrating figuring out why the series was existing. You know, what? Why were we bothering to do this? Other than Disney needed to fill up a half hour on eight, but they bought it, and that was, I think, like the limit of their creative thinking. Um, I don't know that you know somebody else might have come up with alternative, some other way of using the gargoyles that wasn't the way that the first series did, but was different from what we did that might have been more satisfying. Mm-hmm. I, I remember the. I just remember it as being a challenge.
2: And the train had left the station, and it was <laughs> just jump on and hang
0: on. Hmm. Um, I want to go back in, tr- in chronological time, because there's one big thing I we haven't talked about at all, but it was obviously a, a big deal, that you guys both worked on Beetlejuice, which was a big deal at the time, but I feel like that's a series that doesn't get any love anymore. It doesn't really get talked about. What was it like working on Beetlejuice?
2: Well, and I'm going to jump out of this one, because Eric's the one who took over the reins uh, in the second season, when it moved from
1: network to Fox Kids. Yeah, it was... It was When Fox Kids was getting started, uh, it's hard to remember now, but Fox was this t- tiny little group of stations that was trying to be a full television network. And then in the U.S., the other three had been around for 50 years and were, you know, 98% of the viewers of America were just watching ABC, NBC, and CBS. And here was this little group of independent stations that was trying to make itself into a network. And so when they... Looked around to find stuff they could fill their Saturday morning with. They found that ABC was done with Beetlejuice, which was all, all, also recorded in Canada, by the way, in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the, the Lydia was the same voice as Jubilee, same actress, Alison Court. Um, but in any case, they had they, they got they liked the the, the what they seen in the ABC Beetlejuice, but they thought it was a little bit young and soft. And they said, Well, look, we're taking it over now as Fox and we need it to be different. We need to to make it older and give it more of an edge and make it uh, uh, you know, bigger, maybe twenty-two minute episodes instead of eleven uh, make the stakes a little higher, just to differentiate the tone a bit from what had been on ABC so that people wouldn't say, Oh, this is the, kind of the Fox version. So I was the nice thing about Beetlejuice. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm proud of the stuff we've written on it, and an awful lot of people that I used on X-Men, I used on Beetlejuice. You know, writers for the 20 episodes I was working it. Uh, both Eden's brothers, uh, uh, Bob Skeer, Marty Eisenberg, uh, a number of people. Um, we got had their, their their first writing experience on on Beetlejuice, writing for me, and I was that that was. That was what got me the X Men job. I mean, it was Sydney I Water to Margaret Lesh at Fox and it was early in their tenure and they didn't have a lot of original movie shows going and this was one they knew could be successful and they were nice enough. I just I wrote a single script as a writer for the people uh, for Ted and Patsy, the, the the people that had been running the show at A B C and they liked it enough that then they will, wasn't there and take over and, and do, do the last season for you. So that was, I got my foot in the door at Fox by earning that job. And that's why they thought of me when X-Men came up. So I, 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 I owe a lot to Beetlejuice. And it was, it was great fun. It's wild and, and anarchic. And it's, it's a, they're a very different kind of writing. Than you know, writing something as straight and serious as X Men, or yeah, you know, it's just it's it had its own special charm, and it's it's a show I thought was very successful, and we had great fun you know, great fun writing it.
0: Now, obviously, the majority of your of your credits are in animation, so that's why it's interesting to see Young Hercules kind of stand out uh, on your kind of list. How did you, how did you both become involved in working on Young Hercules?
1: Well, well, that was. It, it made all the sense of the world because it was a, uh, it was a Fox kids show. And what happened was uh, the people that did Hercules and Xena, those two super successful shows um, that had been running for three or four years that, and, and, and we just really the rage at the time. Uh, they, they wanted to expand and do another show. And so let we can do a kid show and they did a, they did a, a, a pilot movie of Young Hercules with a different actor, that just to show that it could be done. With, you know, focusing on kids, or, you know, teenagers rather than on these adults. And so they sold the concept to to Fox Kids. So when they said, "Well, who can run this thing?" Um, instead of the live action people that they were used to doing with their hour of dramas. They said, okay, well, this is going to be on Fox Kids. It's going to be half an hour long, even though it's live action. Let's talk to a few of the people that are currently doing some of the better shows on Fox, half-hour shows on Fox Kids, and that meant animated shows. There were four or five of us up for the for the job, and I think the people that were one step ahead of us were also a team that had done uh, uh, animated shows. So, so. That's the reason that we had, got the opportunity. It's because of, of Fox Kids, and and it was it was great fun. It was complete. It was very different writing for live action. And I know this is hard for people that watch live action to imagine, but we found it much simpler. <laughs> um, an X Men script was forty pages. A Young Hercules script was twenty pages. Oh wow! And it was because with with, with animation you're trying to communicate to the storyboard artist exactly how everything looks as the action is going forward. And with live action, you've got a director on the set that says, no, 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 I want to stage this. Just kind of give me the dialogue and give me some spare indication about what each character do with the other one. And I will, you know, I'll put it in the frame. I'll, you know, I'll decide, uh, you know, how this chase is choreographed. Give me a simple, bare, uh, short script with the emotions and the dialogue in it, and I'll stage it. Whereas with animation, if you don't indicate the action that's going on, the you know, storyboard artist is staring at it and says, "Okay, the X Men fight X Factor uh, for three for three minutes. You know, how do you stage that? You know, how, it, it really helps. We think anyway to, to give the artists a lot of detail." And they may change it and improve it, and, uh, uh, and but the point is, in animation, we you really need to write for people for the, for the artists, and it's something you don't we didn't have to do with Jerry Hercules*. So even though we had to do two script final two scripts a week for twenty five weeks because it was fifty of them, um, it wasn't uh, as much work as trying to find final two animation scripts a week. It was it, it just. It was, it was, it, it was, well, the thing about it was we could see the footage the next, even though I shot it in New Zealand, we could see what we'd written and how it worked within a day or two. Whereas in animation, you'd have to, we have to write an entire season, be done, wrap it up, and then see if it worked or not. Because you wouldn't get the animation back to see how your scripts had played. So there's a real challenge in animation where you have to have faith. That what you're hearing in your head and what you're seeing, in mind when you're writing a script, actually is working, uh, because you're not going to see it for months. Uh, but but yeah, early and Ryan was great. Julia got to hug him twice. Twice, yes.
2: <laughs> and young guy, even then you knew he had whatever the magic term is. But he, a hard worker uh, and just a, a great young.
1: Painful young guy. He just turned eighteen when when he started working. His his mother went down to New Zealand with him because he was so young, Uh, tall and skinny. They had to like paint muscles on him. Airbrush,
2: airbrush.
1: Yes. (laughs) And yet, if you think about it, he he was just just about every episode, and he had to carry uh, a a season of fifty stories. And he did without without complaint and yeah. and without weakness. He just didn't matter what kind of story we threw him. Uh, uh, he handled it, and we were we were really impressed with him.
0: This is kind of a weird question, but when you guys were writing the stories for this, was there any? Uh, sense at the time of trying to kind of keep a continuity or chronology going with what had happened in the kind of main Her- Hercules uh, series, or was there a- an implied continuity between them at the time? I, I actually can't remember, so I- forgive me if it's if it was obvious.
2: And implied continuity. There were, there were things that we couldn't, we, we were never going to cross paths with young Xena. That just wasn't going to happen. Um, but uh, in terms of keeping with um, uh Ares and, and strike and discord and, and those characters, we were able to play with those in a way that remained consistent with what happens later with 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 Hercules, the legendary journeys, and with Xena. Um, but we, we had a certain amount of free reign there,
1: which was fun. Yeah, yeah. So we, we used a few obviously similar crews. This, this is the same production company there, uh, a few of the a few of the supporting actors that were overlapped from the main show. But that was there's was a real challenge that one was in terms of tone because Hercules and Xena were pushing the envelope as far as sex and violence went. They were they were as close to an HBO show as you could have on network television at the time, and we were and the kids in a corner. We were in Saturday. We had all these restrictions about what you couldn't couldn't say and couldn't couldn't show, and I think uh, while. Well, while the, we had a wonderful time writing the stories, I think the Hercules and Xena people never quite understood how different a show it needed to be to to play on, show, on kids' TV. Um, so I think that was... that. You know, we, we didn't have arguments about it, but I think that was probably a frustration for them. They thought, oh, we'll do a third show, and it'll be just like our first two shows. And then they got kind of hit in the face with, well, no, it's... There are there are rules at kids' TV, and and course of what you put in Hercules and G, that falls outside of them. So we need to pull back on that.
2: But it was a wonderful experience.
1: Oh yeah, we, we, we loved time. it. We yeah. loved it. We were so disappointed when they didn't have another season, another fifty. And that was just a business decision. High Saban had the had the hot the the, the, the power mystery. to decide that, and,
2: and he and, didn't have an interest in, and he uh, didn't uh,
1: have a financial interest in uh, in that in. Uh, Young Hercules, so it it wasn't renewed. It was its ratings were great. It was mm-hmm.
0: it was doing wonderfully, yeah. but uh, just a business decision, and that was a shame. We were ready for the next season. Well, th- thankfully Ryan landed on his feet. So <laughs>
1: um,
0: now, actually, a, a question about what was it? What was what were your interactions through, throughout the years with Heim Saban? Um, you you touch on it lightly in the, in the book, but um, did you have kind of like? How much of it was? Did you have direct communication? Was it more kind of through different layers and through different levels that you kind of had your interactions? Does that make sense?
1: When we first, when X-Men started, which was the first, my first experience with him, it was more. It was more. I you'd actually, I actually have a couple meetings with him. You know, when when we got hired on. Uh, it was a much it was a much smaller company he wasn't nearly as rich a person and so he was more more accessible um, at the time he actually you know, the, he actually wasn't didn't interfere creatively as far as we you know if we stayed within budget uh, uh, he didn't care so there wasn't a problem of him trying to micromanage the shows we developed and um, The problem was always he would be telling his his people at various stages, "Oh, do this! Find a way to do this cheaper." That would undermine us. It wasn't. It wasn't. Again, it wasn't creative. It was all financial. And you read in the book there are people that have trouble with him because uh, he obviously absolutely does not care about the quality of of what goes out uh, to to the fans. But at the same time, he He's, he plays pretty straight with you. If he makes a deal with you, he follows through on it. If he's going to, uh, you know, uh, produce your show, he's going to produce your show. There are—he's uh, he, a mixed bag. There are, there are all sorts of stories about Haim, and uh, he's obviously made himself, a, you know, a huge person out here in, in the business. But uh, for a number of people that have worked with him on a number of shows, he—you know—he plays straight. He plays—he's hard. He, he you will know, whittle you down to a really tight budget and, and, and try to whittle you some more. But you know, once a handshake's a handshake with him. Mm-hmm. So so there's some real there's some upsides to him. And you know, if he hadn't put the X Men package together, uh, a it might not have happened. Oh, I mean, it would have happened eventually. But somebody else might have put it together that wanted to creatively micromanage it and might have gotten in the way and ruined it. So. We're, oddly, we're grateful that that he that he was involved in that the fact that it got done, mm-hmm. and he didn't get in our way creatively until, yes. until the fifth season when he cut the budget. Hmm. But, at what, but for most of it,
0: go ahead. I was just going to say, at what point did you find out or... Uh, and maybe we already mentioned this, but at what point did you find out that he had cut the budget for season five? Was it not until like after everything was completed on your end and then you got the animation back? Or like how, when did you first kind of learn that this was going to look very different?
1: That was it, because as I say, we were on to new projects by then, and the people that, the, the production, you know, the people at Graz Entertainment and the other people that were doing the hands-on work in post-production and getting the footage back those people were struggling with it, and they they weren't they weren't calling us up and saying, "Oh, Eric, you're not going to believe this, but the the, the the fifth season doesn't look right." They were just having to try the best they could. So we just kind of heard it second hand and really didn't appreciate it until we saw the episodes.
0: Mm. Now, with um, when you guys were working on that season. Uh, you know, I, I just lost my question. Sorry.
2: <laughs> you know what, Adam? And we're getting to a kind of point here. We may need to start thinking about um, wrapping this one up. But yes, that doesn't mean we can't chat again another time soon.
0: For sure. No, you're absolutely right. I guess my my last kind of um, question then is when putting together the book, um, how did you how did you decide on this? Is going to such a banal question, but um, it's it's a great book. I really enjoy it. I wish it was longer. <laughs>
2: At 450-plus pages, I love hearing that. My gosh.
0: Well, and I I think a part of it, again, is that when you guys... Especially when, when there was more examination on the individual episodes, it became... Like I, I just I couldn't put it down because I remember all the episodes so well. So being able to uh, read again had this kind of behind the scenes commentary on, on each episode, especially, I thought that almost could have been its own book. Like, you know very easily could have been its own examination on each issue. Maybe you guys will, or each episode. Maybe you guys will do that in the future. But I, I honestly, like thought that that was the part where I'm like, I want more of this. I want, I want, a, I, just, I want more. <laughs> well, that's very gratifying. Thank you for that. Yeah,
2: thanks. It's.
1: I mean, obviously, we had trying to come to the balance because the uh, I would imagine that most people reading it are fans and know the know the show. At the same time, there are a lot of people that were say curious about uh, curious about the show, didn't know it that well, and for them, I think the history will be more interesting than the details of the episodes because they won't know the episodes. But it was it was a real balancing act, the, you know, trying to decide. What would be interesting for people, but what wouldn't be too long and too boring or too or too involved uh, for to keep their interest? So that's that's. Been, I had a pretty good publisher that was seemed to have a, a feeling for you know how uh, uh, how a uh, chapter or, or or topic should go. Uh, but I'm, th- I'm thrilled to hear somebody wanted to be longer. I'll pass that on because <laughs> we're going to do a second edition. At some point, because it's it's selling well uh, by the, our publishing standards, and so
2: and we're uh, finding things to include. That yeah, we hadn't yeah.
1: I mean, there were like seven storyboards that I couldn't find, and so in, the, in various episodes, there are six or seven that don't have an image. I found them. So the next one will have seven new storyboard images in it, and and perhaps a, a new uh, interview or two. So uh, if, if if this is four fifty, maybe the next one will be five hundred. There we go.
0: So my, I have a last question, then I'll let you guys run away. Um, when I when I read the book, I read your, your bio in the back, and I can't help but ask, because you mentioned that you helped run a world-renowned Italian motorcycle shop. I, I have to ask, what? how did that happen?
1: I just dumb luck. Before uh, we met. Was before, yeah, can, yeah, Julia doesn't much care for motorcycles. Uh, two, two other college friends of mine and I were out here in California in it was, it was 1987, the summer of 87, and by chance, we'd all, we'd all ridden motorcycles in college and, and, and had fun. And when we moved out here, we, we continued. And we, again, random chance, we'd all had Italian motorcycles, either Ducatis or Moto Guzzi's. And uh, the shop that we went to here in Glendale, which is the biggest one in Southern California, which is kind of, is, is a big market for for, for motorcycles, um it, it lost its lease and, and went out of business in, in June, and we were all three were customers. We thought, well, what are we going to do? Uh, so, uh, a fourth friend came to us and said, "Look, we could run our own, we could we can open our own shop. You know, we could just throw our a little bit of savings together and, and open the shop." And of course, it's much more complicated than that, and <laughs> and we had our ups and downs. But that's basically what happened. Four friends got together, opened this little shop, and. Uh, at the time, Italian motorcycles weren't very popular. Nobody much knew what they were, and so we had a pretty easy time of it as far as competition went. And we're celebrating 31 years in business. Um, it's it's been great fun. I don't ride as much as I as I used to, but it's uh, it's 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 a, it's been a pleasure. And it just came down to uh, three guys who suddenly had their shop closed. And thought, well, maybe we can do this, and and gave it and gave it a try.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing. <laughs> well. I- uh, Eric and Julia thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to chat with me today and I know we've gone over over an hour and a half now so thank you so much I really appreciate it I know my listeners will as well and um, if we can ever have you back on the show I'd love to and to get even further into uh, into the X-Men uh, animated series lore because um, I, I, I don't tire of reading about it I don't tire about uh, learning more about it I love hearing the behind the scenes whether it's behind the scenes about particular episodes or just more about the show I would love to Talk more about your interactions with Stan at some point. So, if we can ever have you back, I would, I would love that. Okay. We well, would love to make that happen. Thank you. And, and maybe we'll have a
1: chance to meet. We're hoping to come up to Toronto, uh, maybe in mid to late summer, and do something with the cast.
2: Ironically, we have never met. We've talked on Skype, but that's only recently because of the book. We had yeah. no reason to be in Toronto. So they we'll, had no reason
1: to be here. We'll let you know. We're going to try. We're trying to get a you know like an event coordinator to put together a panel. You know, at a small theater somewhere with with the cast. So if you know
2: anybody, <laughs> you don't yes. know anything, uh, nobody
1: that does that in Toronto that's good at that, that's trustworthy at that. We'd love to, to hear from
0: them. Okay, I might know a couple people. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll try and speak again.
1: Thank well, you. Bye
0: bye. Bye bye.